Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Long may she reign. Presented to you by Aidan Fitzgerald. Hey guys, welcome back to the Long May She Reign podcast. I'm Aiden. I'm your host for this podcast. So, guess who messed up on her first take and already opened her Coca-Cola, which means you guys can't hear the sweet sound of me opening up my Coca-Cola. The answer would be me. Uh, Welcome to this podcast where I fail miserably at everything on it. Speaking of which, I'm so sorry that I haven't uh, posted this episode on the right day. It was supposed to be on Tuesday, but I didn't do that because I wasn't feeling well. And even though I could talk, I just didn't feel like recording because I felt like shit. Um, Also, it's kind of been hard to do this podcast with my job because I have to commute like an hour to get to my job. And by the time I come back here, I don't feel like recording. I don't feel like writing. I just want to take a goddamn nap. So doing this podcast hasn't been easy, and even on my days off, like, I don't, I never feel like I have enough time to actually, you know, write anything, so I am very badly following behind, but I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try and catch up, I promise. Um, what did I do while I was sick? Oh, yeah, well, well, one of the things I've been wanting to do, I've been wanting to get back into reading more, because I feel like I've kind of fallen on the wayside on that but another thing i've been wanting to do with my reading is kind of diversify it more um i have a lot of books by authors of color but i i didn't think enough um books by indigenous authors and i wanted to read like more of that perspective i don't really know a lot about indigenous people in general and i also think it's really important to to support authors of color so i've been buying a lot of indigenous authors books i bought three recently on a uh, you know late night amazon shop um the first one's called uh lote i think that's how you pronounce it i'm not quite sure you guys know me and my pronunciations um and then another book called bad cree and then a book called funeral songs for dying girls which i am reading with my mom right now and we're we're both really enjoying it it's quite good um what else did i do i oh i went to ripley's aquarium on my day off before i was sick um that was really great um i hadn't been there since it initially opened so i was curious to see if anything changed not really nothing did but it was it was kind of like seeing it for the first time because i i haven't been there in so long and me and my mom may or may not have uh gotten lost underground in the subways uh trying to find ripley's from underground because it was like it was raining really bad that day and we didn't want to go out into the to the street to walk to ripley's so i think my mom we went like in the opposite direction of Ripley's for like 20 minutes before we realized we were going the wrong way. So that was fun. Um, but you guys aren't here to hear about that. You don't care. Um, oh, actually one thing I did get from Ripley's now I'm, I'm five apparently. And I just needed a, uh, sea animal (laughs) stuffy. (laughs) 
And I bought a leatherback turtle stuffy for like 25 bucks. And I named him Tortuga, like the island in the Caribbean. But also I found out that Tortuga means turtle in Spanish, which I didn't know before naming him. So uh, right on, I'm so smart. My uh, turtle is just named Turtle in Spanish. But I've been thinking of making Tortuga the official mascot of this podcast. He has nothing to do with women in history, but I don't care. Tortuga is officially the new mascot of this podcast. I need you guys to give him a big round of applause. Go Tortuga. Anyway, now today we are talking about Queen Sandoke of Scylla. Um, I hadn't really heard of her before I started doing research on her. I think the, the first time I ever, you know, heard her name was on Twitter. Someone from like one of the history Twitter accounts that I follow was like, hey, uh, Queen Sandoke did this on this day in this year, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wow, she sounds really cool. And she is. Uh, she gives me really big Queen Elizabeth I vibes, but you know, in Korea. Um, I was really excited to do this episode because I just don't generally know a lot about Korean culture. Um, I think my extent is K-pop, and even then I don't know much about K-pop either. So I was really excited to learn about, you know, um, Dark Ages Korean culture, and I hope you guys are excited to learn about it too. Even if you know a lot about Korean culture, this could still be a really fun episode to learn a bit more about it. Alright guys, let's get into it. Okay, so Queen Sendoke of Silla was born as Princess Deokman sometime during either the year 595 AD or 610 AD to King Jinpyeong of Silla and his first wife, Queen Maya of the Kim clan. Now, since we literally do not have a clue when she was born, like, that's a pretty, that's like a 15-year, like, range of when she could have been born, let's do a deep dive into her, uh, Renyul name and her birth name, because I, I'm not overly familiar with Korean names, so I was curious if, uh, either name had meanings in Korean. So, let's discuss. Now, Sendoke's birth name, Deokman, according to one translation I found, means virtue and lovely, which I think complements her regnal name, which translates to nice and virtue. So, it's very matchy of her to choose a, a, a regnal name that directly complements the name she was born with. I wonder if that was, like, a thing. Like, I didn't look too deeply into, like, her dad's regnal name or to see if he had, like, a birth name, but I wonder if it was, like, a thing in the Korean royal family to pick a regnal name that complements the name you were born with. If if so, that's really cool. Um, I actually had a really tough time finding translations at all for either of the, these names, so uh, if you're Korean and happen to know other translations for these names, or if the translations I gave were right or wrong, you know, let me know. I, I, I don't speak Korean. I don't know anything about the language. I'd love to know if someone else knows. Okay, so... <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. We know very little about Sendoke personally, mostly because she lived so long ago, and also in a lot of ways she's been mythologized to such a degree since she died that it's hard to pick out what's real from her life and what's not. But I will try my best to sift through all the bullshit for you. Also, probably in some parts of this episode I'm gonna call Sendoke Sun. <laughs> not because I've have a hard time pronouncing her name. Actually, I think I'm doing quite well. Um, I had to, like, Google how to pronounce her name phonetically. 
but I kind of wanted to call her Sun because she, the first half of her, of her name kind of reminds me of the character of Sun from Lost. And I was actually watching Lost again recently. And I really like that, so I'm going to keep it like that. So if you catch me accidentally calling her Sun, I'm not trying to give her a nickname because I can't pronounce her name. I can pronounce Sundoke, I swear. It's just, she, she reminds me of Sun from Lost. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so let's get to know Sun's parents, Queen Maya and King Jin Pyong. Hmm. I can do this. I can do this. I can pronounce this name. I'm going to pronounce it right. Jin Pyong. Jin Pai. Jin Pyong. Jin Pyong? I think I got it. Jin Pyong. I probably didn't pronounce it right the first time. Anyway, uh, but we're going to start with her mom, Maya. <laughs> Because clearly I can pronounce that. Um, now, I'm I'm going to be honest. We literally know next to nothing about Sun's mom other than the fact that she was probably chosen to be the king's wife because of her royal blood. Uh, Mayo was the daughter of a nobleman who was from like a, like a cadet branch of the royal Kim family. And Maya's mom uh, was actually a princess and a granddaughter several times removed of at least two former kings of Scylla. So she was royal as fuck, but also like probably really inbred. <laughs> See, it doesn't just happen in European royal families. Um, Sun's dad really wasn't much better when it came to the whole inbreeding thing. Uh, his parents were also cousins and had the same and the last name, which meant uh, when these two got married, they were, were related like one, two, three, many times over they were related a lot and honestly it's a wonder they were even able to have kids like they were really related as far as i was able to tell like i think they share a couple shared a couple of great-grandfathers <laughs> anyway uh son's dad came to the throne when he was pretty young after a uh, coup against his uncle who's king uh, he was only 13 years old when his uncle abdicated and passed the throne to him, so until he reached his majority, his grandmother, Queen Sado, ruled as regent. Now, from what I heard, she was a lady with a serious iron grip who wouldn't even let poor teenage King Jin rule even when he uh, came of age. Now, I'm curious if she arranged a marriage between Sun's parents because she seemed, like, you know, calculating and, like, really, really on top of things at the time, and based on what little I was able to, like, read about her. Um, anyway, Jin, King Jin eventually did get to rule on his own. His reign was pretty prosperous overall, at least that's what I seemed to be able to gather. Um, he set up an administrative department for managing government officials and personnel, a department for the management of the country's navy. Um, the king was also a big advocate of Buddhism, which helped him have close diplomatic ties with the very powerful Chinese emperors, who were also Buddhist. Uh, however, one of the big strains on his reign was the constant constant fighting between Scylla and the other kingdoms on the Korean peninsula. And to explain all that, it's time for my favorite segment, the Historical Context Corner. Da-da-da! <laughs> so today, we know the Korean peninsula as a place divided by two nations. However, during this time, it was divided into four kingdoms, of which only three are really important. Uh, Sun's Kingdom, Scylla, located in the southeast of the peninsula. Then you have uh, Big Jet Bekje? Bekje? I think that's it. Situated in the southwest with the unimportant kingdom of Gaia sandwiched in between these two. Finally, in the north, you have the largest of the three kingdoms, Goryeo, which is where uh, we get the modern word for Korea. And the and overall, Goryeo was the biggest and baddest of all 
all three of the important kingdoms. Now, these guys have been fighting each other for literal centuries, back and forth, gaining land and taking it away, and soon enough, drought and famine and, well, general discontent spread, spread through the country while King Jin was fighting back invaders. Honestly, war doesn't really reflect reflect well on anybody, but it definitely reflected badly on King Jin, no matter how good he was at ruling. Now, overall, I don't really necessarily think this was his fault. I mean, what are you going to do? These kingdoms have been fighting each other for centuries before you were born. Now, because Sin's life has been so mythologized, we don't know much about her childhood, but here is what I gleaned from the few, you know, solid facts that we know about her. Uh, we know she was probably the oldest of her parents' children. She had a sister who I'm going to call Cheo. Um, I'm pretty sure her sister's name is pronounced Cheo Meong, but I'm not sure about that. So when we refer to her again, we'll just call her Princess Cheo. And she also probably had another sister named Seon Hwa. But evidence for Seon Hwa actually uh, existing is scarce to none at all. She may have been an aunt. Or she might not have existed at all. Who knows? Um, I wasn't able to find much on the education of nobles or princesses, and by much I mean I found nothing. But I did find out a little bit about Korean society in the Three Kingdoms period that I thought might help me figure out what she would have been taught in her education. Now, women in Korea at this time had a fairly good status. Uh, they had the ability to inherit land and titles. Although you wouldn't find any women in the government, you could find lower class women running taverns and other kinds of businesses. Uh, women were allowed to remarry when their husbands passed away. Women were trusted for caring for their old parents. Male or female children shared equal responsibilities for rituals after the parents' deaths. Now, my assumption based on the general society at the time, and especially because of son's status, that she would have been educated well as a child, almost on par with men, but she probably would have been educated in more feminine arts compared to her male relatives. Um, one slightly mythological story I read about how intelligent Sun was as a child was that one time when Emperor Taozong of Tang, China sent a sample of poppy seeds and a painting of the flowers of the Silla Court, Sun predicted that the flowers in the picture would have no scent, and when they bloomed, the poppies were indeed odorless. Apparently, Sundoke explained that there were no bees or butterflies in the painting, hence her prediction that the blossoms were not fra fragrant. Usually, flowers smell because, uh, you know bees have pollinated them. Now, that gets me wondering, and I don't know if this is like a stupid question to ask, but does that mean, like, I wonder, would any of one have actually known about, you know, bees and butterflies making flowers smell? Like, that was something I learned very recently. I, I, gen I genuinely just thought flowers, flowers smelled, but apparently they need insects to help them do that. Anyway, dumb side tangent because I'm stupid. Anyway, before we get into the rest of the story, uh, let's just briefly talk about what evidence we have for her appearance, but I warn you, it's not much, as is the uh, similar theme in this entire episode. Now, as far as I know, portraits and paintings uh, were available at this time, as many Chinese emperors sat for portraits of themselves, but it seems that Sun never did. However, this there is this one Buddhist statue on Namsan Mountain that is said to be made in her likeness, but that doesn't give us much because it's not like an ultra-detailed statue. It's actually quite simple. Um, other than that statue, we have some historical accounts and legends about her character and appearance, such as the legend of Jigui, describing her as generous, benevolent, wise, and smart, and even beautiful. 
And now that we know she was just so beautiful and so elegant and so intelligent and we just love her so much, let's move on to understanding how exactly she ended up being Scylla's first queen regnant. Now, while I mentioned before that Scylla was a pretty nice place for women, it wasn't perfect. Although in theory, women were in line for the throne of Scylla, everyone's commitment to equal inheritance rights had not been tested until Sun's dad, King Jin, didn't produce a son with his wife, Queen Maya. Now, Sun's dad did have a couple of sons by uh, concubines, but it seems that unlike in uh, China, you couldn't make the son of a concubine in line for the throne. So he decided to marry again in the hopes of producing a son. Now, I bet you're wondering, um, hey, Aiden, what about Sun's mom, Queen Maya? Did she, like, die or something? How is uh, Sun's dad getting remarried? Well, the answer to that question, uh, dear listener, is that I have no fucking idea. Um, Queen Maya sort of disappears off the face of the earth about this time. Um, I didn't find any record of her, like, actually dying or anything, so my assumption is that she she could have died and it just wasn't mentioned, or Jin just quietly, you know, set her aside. I don't really, really know how divorce worked back then, but maybe he divorced her and, like, set her up someplace nice with a bucket full of money and no responsibilities because, after all, she was still the mother of his two daughters, we don't know. Anyway, uh, he married his next queen, uh, Queen C. Okay, I can do this. Queen Seung Man, Seungman, who did give him his long-sought-after prince, but Kid died very quickly after he was born. I think he only lived like a month or something. And the next kid that King Jin and Queen Seokman had was another girl, and after that, I think King Jin just got sick of tiptoeing around the inevitability that he would have to name his daughter heir. Now, I can't remember where I read this. I think it was probably Wikipedia, so it's probably not right, but I just wanted to include it because I thought it was interesting. Sun's stepmom apparently accused her and her cousin, Prince Yongchun, of poisoning her baby brother to take the throne. Her accusation got so loud and annoying that King Jin had his own wife banned from the palace, which seems harsh, harsh, but as we all learned watching House of the Dragon recently, there are severe consequences for questioning the honor and integrity of the heir to the throne. So at least the queen didn't get her head chopped off. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> now, after all that, King Jin had a decision to make. Now, one important thing you have to know about the Kingdom of Scylla is that they had a special class system that helped determine who or who couldn't be the next ruler of Scylla, and they were very serious about keeping that system intact. Now, this system was called the Bone Rank System, and it worked like this. The highest bone rank was called Seungol, or Sacred Bone, made up of people who were members of the royal family on both sides. Initially, only sacred bone-ranked people could become Scylla's king or queen, but that was changed as, you know, they started running out of people who happened to be royal on both sides of their family. Now, the second rank was called True Bone, True bone or Jingal, and consisted of people of royal blood on one side of the family and noble blood on the other. Below these bone ranks were head ranks, or dumpum, six, five, and four. Head rank six men could hold... Uh, the higher ministerial and military posts, while members of head rank four could only become lower level bureaucrats. So either the whole bone system had to just be restructured th so that Scylla could have a male ruler, or they could keep, you know, their tradition and let Sun have her rightful place on the throne, because she was royal on both sides of her family. 
Now, lucky for us, King Jin loved his daughter and, you know, also loved tradition and chose to name her as his heir, as was her right, as the person in the family with the highest bone rank. However, some on the king's council decided to be fucking sexist that day and didn't want a woman to be named heir, so they planned a rebellion against King Jin to protest Sun's designation as heir. Now, unfortunately for the uh, two heads of the rebellion, their plans were discovered before they could act, and both men were executed along with their entire families, actually. Yeah, no, uh, medieval Korea was fucking hardcore, I, I'm just saying. <laughs> Although, uh, one of the, like, two leaders of the rebellion actually managed to escape to one of the neighboring kingdoms. Uh, that guy's downfall was that, uh, he missed his wife and snuck back into the country and ended up being captured by soldiers in his home and was also executed. My fucking god. <laughs> one year after this failed rebellion, King Jin died in January of 635, and Sun succeeded her father as Silla's first ever queen regent, starting a golden age for Silla and its people. Now, we don't have any information specifically about what Sun's coronation was like. However, I was able to find some information on Scylla's coronation rituals from this period to give us a little idea of what her coronation might have looked like. Now, as mentioned before, it was Sun's dad who kind of normalized the practice of Buddhism in Scylla. But before that, people in Scylla, Scylla practiced shamanism, which is kind of like a nature worship that requires the expertise of priest-like figures or shamans. Now, since it hadn't been that long since they, you know, switched over re religiously, this nature worship was still pretty present in coronation rituals, especially in the crowns Sun would have worn. Now, we have a lot of great examples of crowns from Sun's time period, and boy, are they fucking cool. Like, I've, I've never seen crowns like these. I mean, they were so interesting. Basically, crowns from this time were like these golden headbands with big golden rods that make you look like you kind of had antlers, and they were meant to invoke the sacred tree that once stood in the ritual precinct of a place I cannot pronounce. I'm sorry. Um, this sacred tree was conceived of as a world tree or an axis mundi that connected heaven and earth. Um, Kind of like the, the world tree in North mythology, uh, Yggdrasil, in a way, I guess. Um, the material that many of these crowns are uh, made with actually tells you a lot about the different cultures that Sun and her kingdom were interacting with in the world. As a few of the crowns from around her time are made with precious stones from as you know close as China, but also as far away as Afghanistan, which tells us that the kingdom of Scylla was actively using the Silk Road, which is so fucking cool, and they have the ability to talk and trade with fucking Afghanistan. That's crazy. Like, that's an entire continent away. Fucking thousands of miles, and they were able to get stones from Afghanistan. I mean, how fucking cool is that? Now, Sun knew pretty much right after she got crowned that most of the nobility wasn't happy with her because one, she was a woman, and two, these guys were still a little butthurt after her dad had two of their colleagues very much unalived. So, Sun set about gaining her own basis of support, first by appeasing her subjects. She sent royal inspectors throughout the kingdom to improve the care of widows, widowers, orphans, the poor, and the elderly. Now, this immediate action gained her a lot of love from common people in Sela, which was a big boost in her popularity and helped stop any peasant uprising, which is, you know, good. You, you can't have the peasants uprising. That's not great for anyone. Now, like many great queens, Sun was heavily interested in the arts and commissioned many buildings projects and paid for students from Scylla to go study in China and bring back what they learned to improve 
the Korean education system. At this time, China was like the end-all be-all of, you know, education intelligence. That China was like the Athens <laughs> of Asia, you know? Now, one of Sun's finest building projects was the construction of a public observatory so that everyone in Silo could come and learn about astronomy. Shockingly, this thing is still standing and uh, sits at about 9 meters tall. Uh, the South Korean government designated it as a national treasure, and it is thankfully being protected and preserved. She also exempted peasants from paying taxes during the first year she was queen, which I'm sure made her the most popular fucking person ever. I mean, woo, new queen, oh, yay, no taxes for one year, yay, fun. However, her reign certainly was not all sunshine and rainbows. After all, this is still the Three Kingdoms period, which means the minute Sun was crowned, the other two kingdoms thought that they could get away with whatever they wanted because she was a woman. Now, lucky for her, she had some pretty competent generals, including her first, her first cousin, Yongchun, the son of the uncle who abdicated the throne and made Sun's dad king in the first place. Uh, she also had her nephew, uh, Chun Chu, her sister's kid, as a diplomat. Um, at the start of Sun's reign, her biggest ally should have been China. China was a very traditional ally of Scylla, but unfortunately, the emperor at the time, who you might remember briefly from my Empress Wu episode, Emperor Taizong, who was Wu's father-in-law was on the throne at the time. Anyway, the emperor refused to recognize Sun as queen, so Sun tried to strike out on her own and sent her nephew Chun Chu to try and negotiate with the northern kingdom of Goryeo to see if they wanted to team up against the other kingdom. But Goryeo was basically like, that's fucking funny, Sun. And they said they would only help if they gave up some territory to them. Sun refused, so they locked up poor Chun Chu. <laughs> And she had to send a huge army up to Guryeo to go and get him back, because that's her fucking nephew, and she has not taken that shit. Now, when the king of Guryeo heard about the huge army on, on, the, on the way to him, he let Chun Chu go and apologize, but still refused to help her attack uh, Bijek. Now, later on, the Chinese would offer an alliance to Sun and a helping hand to defend Silo from his neighbors by offering weapons and Chinese soldiers. But there was a catch to this offer. If Sun wanted the army, she was going to have to marry a Chinese prince and let him rule in her stead. She would still be queen in name, but not in practice. And I gotta tell you, Sun was not down for that idea. She refused that offer almost as fast as they offered it. But I guess the Chinese must have been, like, desperate to show some dominance on the battlefield, so they ended up just giving her their armies anyway, no strings attached. Now, over the years, Sun and her troops suffered some brutal defeats against the other two kingdoms, but eventually her successors, with the help of their Chinese allies, would defeat the other kingdoms once and for all, but we'll talk about that later. Now, as you can probably tell, Sun's domestic policy was much better than her foreign policy, such as her investment in spreading Buddhism in Silla through various building projects. She helped complete a Buddhist temple whose construction had uh, initially been started under her father's reign. She completed it. Uh, Sun added a nine-story wooden pagoda, which is like one of those like multi-tiered towers that you like see in Asia. If you saw one, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Um... Its construction was supervised by the monk and chief ab abbot of the state, uh, Jiajang, aka Cha Chang, and was built by the master ar architect Abiji from Bukje. Uh, the pagoda was completed in 645, and it reached a height of about 68 to 70 meters, making it one of the tallest towers in East Asia at the time. Uh, the nine levels of the building represented the nine other East Asian nations, which it believed Silla would eventually conquer, including Japan and China, which 
Sounds like a pipe dream, but whatever. Um, unfortunately for our modern eyes, the tower was destroyed when the Mongols invaded. Fucking Mongols! In 1200, but you can still go see, like, the bottom of it and, like, the surviving statues, which is cool, but not as cool as a big fucking pagoda would be. Why do the Mongols have to ruin everything? <laughs> um, it's also important to mention the symbolism behind why she built this pagoda. Um, at the time, she was deeply entrenched with in war with the other two kingdoms, and a monk advised her to build it as a symbol that Scylla would come out at, at the top of this war and that they were going to do fine. Uh, she started construction, but she heard that the common people were against it because of the tax raise needed to do it, and apparently she asked her subjects to tear down her palace and use its brick and timbers if they think they lack the funds. And that's when everyone shut the fuck up about the issue and just let her build her goddamn war tower. Good job, son. Now, according to various and probably not entirely true historical accounts, it's said that Sun was married three times, while other accounts I read said she was never married like Queen Elizabeth I. But, as it's important to cover all my bases, let's talk about her three possible imaginary husbands. Now, the document that mentions Sun being married was written nearly a century after her death, so it's probably not accurate at all and based on rumor, but here's what it says about her marriages. Now, remember Sun's cousin from earlier, the one she was accused of conspiring with to, uh, you know, poison her baby brother? Well, apparently Prince Yongchun was Sun's first husband, and they were married before she became queen in the hopes that they would produce an heir together with a strong claim to the throne. But when that didn't happen, uh, he politely asked for a divorce and would later marry Sun's little sister because it was apparently his older brother's dying wish because that brother was married to Sun's sister. It's so... It's very confusing. Um... But he did end up marrying her little sister, which is weird. Um, but that's the basic story I've heard about her first marriage. Um, her second husband was apparently some wealthy noble who had served in her father's court. And her last, apparently, husband was possibly her half-uncle, because it was rumored that this last guy, whose, whose name we don't know, was her dad's illegitimate half-brother, which is... Uh, but... Despite what I just told you, the dominant consensus is that Sun never got married to avoid political conflict and protect, protect her position. Again, much like Queen Elizabeth I did, which honestly, in her case, was probably really fucking smart. I mean, whoever she married was probably, like, really gonna try and take over. She would have to find a really docile, a person of very docile character to be married to, but that probably would have been hard to find. So maybe it's a good idea that she probably never got married. Anyway, getting back to Sun's reign, as I mentioned, Sun was fighting wards on all sides of all sides of her because the other kingdoms just fucking hated Scylla. So she was spread super thin, and some people knew that and decided it was the perfect time to rebel. Now let's talk about this asshole named Beadum, who started this fucking rebellion because oh, Beadum was the biggest fucking head case I've ever read about. Beadam felt that Sun wasn't managing the country properly as they had war all around them, not to mention Sun's health was poor at the time. So it was left to him to deal with all the politics, and it really pissed him off that there was war going on and Sun was, you know, sick all the time. He felt like this was her fault. And he, he said, and I quote, The female king failed to rule the country, therefore women should stop ruling. Fuck you, be a damn, you don't know fucking shit. This is all, first of all, very rude, and second of all, what the fuck do you want her to do, be dumb? Like, your country has been at war for centuries. 
she isn't just going to be this magical solution that's going to fix everything. I bet you didn't say shit like that during her dad's reign. Like, it's not all her fault. Like, what is she supposed to do when you've got two other kingdoms bullying you constantly? Anyway, Beodom's Rebellion was one of the biggest in Scylla's history. Luckily, a few of um, Sun's best generals suppressed the uprising, and it was over in a couple of months. But in bad news, the day Beodom was executed was also the day Sun died of, of an unknown illness at the age of 37. Now, since she had no children, the hunt was on for her council to find a suitable candidate for the throne, and Sun's cousin, Princess Jiandok, was chosen, which was a huge deal because Scylla went from being a place hesitant to having few more rulers to a place where one queen was succeeding, in, succeeding another, and Queen Jiandok was a credit to Sun's legacy. Now, for context, uh, Jiandok was the daughter of Sun's dad's little brother. Um, in her seven-year reign, she mastered foreign policy by making good with the Tang Dynasty in China, which makes sense because at the time, our girl Empress Wu was the puppet master behind the throne. So, of course, she would be in favor of supporting a fellow powerful queen in Korea. Um, after Jiandok died, the throne went to Sun's nephew, who was the son of her possible former husband and her little sister. And uh, he is credited with finally unifying Scylla with the other kingdoms and creating Korea, which is really cool. Alright, let's get into legacy. My fucking god, where do I even start with Sun's legacy? I mean, she was literally the Queen Elizabeth I of Korea, or maybe Queen Elizabeth I was the Sundoke of England. Uh, Sundoke was good and fair to her subjects and actually invested in their well-being, which is very refreshing. Uh, she fought off invasions, built astronomy towers for God's sakes. Not because it was cool, but because she wanted to have knowledge be accessible to common people. And she did all this and died before the age of 40. I mean, that is fucking badass. Sun has got to be by far one of my favorite East Asian queens that I've ever done, and I can't wait to talk about more ladies from this part of the world someday. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And thank you guys so much for joining me in this episode. I will see you guys hopefully on time in, in two weeks with a brand new episode. Goodbye! Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions for topics, you can just DM me on Twitter at LongMaySheRain2. The N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2 instead. I'm also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, don't forget to rate and review this podcast on all those platforms. It really actually does help the show so much and it will help me grow my audience. So I would absolutely appreciate it if you you guys could do that. All right. Uh, bye.